Our word comes from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desired truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The word of our Lord. Lord, please open up our hearts now to where we need to hear from you for the warnings that you have for us and the truth that we need to hear from you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, to Bridgeway. Good, uh, good to have you with us today. We were, as uh, Andrew and Sherry were singing that song, I was remembering we did that early in our, uh, our live streaming and uh, just picturing when we had some band members around we're going to be together again soon, Lord willing, and I. Uh, so I hope you're well. We're in the thick of a of a real Maryland summer now. You guys were warning me about this, but I love it. I can. I went out for a run yesterday after the Mem Sem, and I like running in 90 degree heat and 100 percent humidity because you you get the full workout in about 100 yards. I ran to the end of the driveway and back. You know, it was great, but it was cool. I ran into our friend Aoni. Uh, while I was out running around, he was working, uh, doing some of his uh, uh, work for Atlantic Broadband, and uh, met his wife uh, Rosa. I think was uh, was your name. It was great to see it. Then they got their ten-year-old daughter Rosani on the phone, and I got to talk to her. She's down in Florida. Rosani uh, sent a, a comment early on and said, "Hello, I want you guys to get on the comments and say hi back to Rosani. She's ten years old. I think she's fifteen. But uh, it was great to see our friends, and uh, again, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be together again uh, soon. Uh, so I hope you had a good week. You know, honestly, Janice and I, though, we, we did not have the best two weeks. Uh, on Monday, we had to say goodbye to uh, our 15-year-old cat, Hawkeye, and uh, he's been a part of our family from Connecticut uh, and then to California and to Maryland. Here's a couple pictures of, of my buddy. He had something in his uh, DNA, a ragamuffin or something. He loved being on his back. He wouldn't sit on your lap. He would sprawl. I mean, look at this. This is, this is him just laying around, and uh, he's, uh, he's my buddy. How can you not like cats? You know what? There's a reason why the Egyptians worshipped cats and ate dogs. Just saying. Just saying. That's just me, but... Uh, Hawkeye developed a tumor in his mouth. All of a sudden, came out of nowhere, and uh, toward the end, he couldn't eat and he couldn't drink, and he and he started to wither away to nothing. And it was last Sunday after I got home from from church and laid on the floor beside my buddy, and we locked eyes, and we knew it was time. And uh, 
if you have pets, you know that this pain, this, uh, this grief is very real and uh, very deep. They're part of your home. They're part of your family. And they're part of your heart. And they are such a gift from God. If you don't have pets, you might be thinking, you know, is it really worth all this, all this trouble? Why, why go through all that? Put yourself through that pain. It's like C.S. Lewis said, uh, in, uh, it was in the movie Shadowlands, if you saw that. He said, the, uh, the pain now is part of the happiness back then. Uh, that's the deal. And another way to look at it is that the pain now is part of the joy that is to come because I firmly believe that heaven is going to be filled with the wonder of, of animals. So, so God is good and we thank him for our Hawkeye. Um, well, today, as, as you know, we are looking at Psalm 51, Psalm which David writes after he confesses uh, perhaps his deepest, darkest sin. And as I was preparing uh, for the talk this week and reading Psalm 51 and visiting David's story again, the story with Bathsheba, uh, I was reminded of a time in seminary a few years ago, uh, a lot of years ago now, but uh, we were all sitting in class and a professor uh, was talking about sexual sin and he looked out at us, a group of about 20, 25 of us, and he said, you know, 25% of you, if the statistics hold true, will not be able to complete your ministry because of sexual sin. And you could hear a pin drop. It got, uh, got so silent in that room. And then he added this. And this is why you must never say, I won't do that. But you must learn to say, I must never do that. Those words have always stuck with me. And I was thinking of them this week uh, as I, I thought of David's story. It's a shame that David did not keep this perspective. It might have uh, helped him. Now, to unpack the psalm properly, you really do have to know something of that, that story. There's a note at the beginning of the psalm that uh, says, uh, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Uh, the story is told uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. And, and so, as I said, to, to get at this psalm, you, you need to know the story. And so, in case anybody out there doesn't know the story, let's revisit this uh, briefly. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it's toward the beginning of the Old Testament, right after 1 Samuel, if that helps. Verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men, and the whole Israelite army. <laughs> Do you need proof that there's sin in us? It's this first phrase. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. When you can describe warfare with the casualness of the beginning of spring training in baseball. You know that we, we have a problem, don't you? Well, honey, I see that the tulips are up. I'm going off to kill, maim, and plunder. Okay, be back for dinner. We've got an issue here. But this is the human heart. We're always, always warring with, with itself and with God and, and with each other. It takes something like winter to slow down the spread of our evil. Or sleep, if you want to uh, look at it that way. Can you imagine the evil we humans would generate if we didn't sleep a third of our lives away? Verse 1 goes on. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And here's where the trouble begins for David. This would probably be a first 
for the king. Up till now, David has always led Israel in her battles. In fact, in the chapter right before this, there he is leading them, uh, bringing another enemy to, to heal. So what's the explanation for this, that David stays behind now? Later in chapter 21, it describes how David goes to battle again with his men, but he becomes exhausted. And his men say to him, never again will you go out with us. The lamp of Israel must not be extinguished. So it could be that David's importance to Israel has reached such uh, significance that they can no longer risk losing him. But the more likely answer is that by this time David is starting to show his age. But for whatever reason, this man with a restless warrior's heart finds himself at home and alone. And a man by himself, bored and alone, is not a good combination. It's a recipe for sin, if ever there was one. Verse 2, then says, One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. No harm, no foul, still no problems here. I go out on my screen porch or take a walk uh, or run out in the country where we live when I need to think. Well, David went out on his flat roof. Everybody had one back then. And maybe the stars were coming out. Remember, there was no light pollution back then. Every night, God put on a show. We've been having a, a show the last few nights. There's this comet running around that sometimes you can see uh, uh, within the uh, Big Dipper, I think. I haven't seen it yet. I'm wondering if any of you have. Uh, but David mentions the night sky in some of his psalms, Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? That might be all David was thinking of when he walked onto the roof that night, spent a little time in prayer, maybe write a psalm. But instead, another show captures his eyes. Back to the story. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. This is Bathsheba, of course. Now, this is a place where some scholars try to pin some sort of culpability on Bathsheba, as though she deliberately did this to seduce David. Foul, tempestuous! But the passage does not say that, or even hint at it. And when God drops, drops the hammer on the evil that takes place in this story, it's only David who is singled out. Bathsheba was pretty much doing what everybody did. Back then, at the end of a hot day, days like we're having now, you go to the coolest, quietest place that you can find to wash away a day's worth of sweat and trouble. But for Bathsheba, her troubles are about to multiply in spades because there's a peeping David out there. Verse 3, And David sent someone to find out about her. Now we're going to come back around to this point in just a few minutes, because we want to do an autopsy of, of David's sin, because this is where his trouble begins right here. And there are lessons for us on how to deal with temptation when it, uh, when it appears in our life. But right, right now I want to do a flyover of the rest of the story, particularly for those who don't know it. And get ready, if you don't know it, your jaw is about to drop. So David learns that this is Bathsheba, the wife of one of his own soldiers, Uriah. David sends for her. She is brought to him. It's clear what David wants. It's not to play Yahtzee. He sleeps with her. He's the king. Basically, he's, he's raping her because he has all the power. He is Thomas Jefferson, and this is Sally Hemings. Of course, she becomes pregnant. 
Well, David needs to cover his, his tracks. No worries. He's got a plan. He summons Uriah, her husband, back from the war front, meets with him, asks how the war is going. Hey, Uriah, while you're here, why don't you go back and enjoy some time with Bathsheba? But Uriah, unlike David, is a man of honor. He's got fellow soldiers that are back on the front lines. They're not resting or playing with their families. They're sacrificing for the nation. So he's not going to rest or play either. Next, David gets Uriah drunk and then tells him to go home. Hey, go sleep with your wife. But honor, you see, is not something that you can wash away with alcohol. And Uriah won't go. Well, David then gets all Walter White on Uriah. And he hatches a plot from the deepest depths of hell. He sends Uriah back to the front with a written message for his general Joab, a message that is sealed, and because Uriah is a man of honor, he's not going to read that message. The message says, send Uriah to the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then pull the men back, that he might be killed. And like his boss, Joab throws his honor away by doing as David instructed. And Uriah is killed in battle. And David then takes Bathsheba and adds her to his harem of wives. Meanwhile, guess who's watching all of this? With a broken heart. A broken heart that's filling up rapidly with fury. God. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we learn how God reveals to the prophet Nathan what David has done. And he sends David back to the palace to confront David. It's absolutely brilliant how, how Nathan does it. He tells David a story. He goes in and says, hey, your majesty, I just heard something so disturbing. There's this, this rich man. And he owns a, a vast herd of sheep. But he lives right next to this poor man who only has one little ewe. And they, they let the ewe run around in the house with him. And the kids play with it. They feed it in their arms. Well, this rich man had some guests that came the other day. And rather than take some sheep from his own herd, you know what this guy did? He took that poor man's ewe right out of his arms and slaughtered it for his meal. David's listening to this and his face is getting redder as he listens. And then David says, as the Lord lives, that man shall die. He shall repay him back four times what he has taken. And at this, Nathan stares deep into David's eyes and says, you are the man. <laughs> One of the greatest scenes in the Bible. Hollywood cannot come up with something this harrowing and gripping. And then Nathan goes on to describe how the Lord will punish David. And it's at some point soon after this, with his moral vision now cleared, and his heart shattered by the realization of what he's done. That David writes Psalm 51. So, that's the story. Now let's look at the psalm. And we want to draw three lessons out of this psalm uh, this morning. And the first is this. It comes from verses 1 and 2. Where David cries out to God for mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Well, here's the lesson. Write this down if you have your note sheet. All our sin must be confessed. And all our sin can be forgiven. All our sin must be confessed. 
but all our sin can be forgiven. One truth this story makes so clear is that we cannot hide our sin from God. Psalm 94 will we'll go on to say, He who formed the eye, does he not see? And God not only sees the, the evil deeds that we do, but do you know that God sees the, the thoughts that lead to those evil deeds. We, we see this all the time in the Bible as Cain is hatching a plot to, to uh, kill his brother Abel. God comes to him right in that moment. Cain's not said a word. He's only thinking it. But God knows that. And he appears to Cain and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's desirous for you, but you must master it. Well, God did this for David as, as well. The, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, says that when we're tempted... God will provide a way of escape for us. And David was given that. Now, do you remember where we left off in the story? After seeing Bathsheba, uh, verse 2, 2 Samuel 11 says, David sent someone to find out about her. Well, those messengers come back. And they say to him in verse 3, David, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, this is God speaking to David right here, trying to call him to his senses. Well, how so? We learn later in 2 Samuel 23 that David had a group of 30 men around him. They were called David's mighty men. These were some of his closest friends and warriors. Well, one of them is named Eliam, and it could very well be the same person. And if so, then here's David being said, David, Bathsheba is the daughter of one of your closest friends. That should have brought him to his senses. This is his chance of escape. But if you won't listen to that, what the messengers say next should be enough for him. And she's the wife of Uriah. She's the wife of another man, David. He's a man you know. He's a man who fights for you, who fights for Israel. He's a, he's a man who's inspired by your own courage and your own integrity. He wants to be like you. A man after God's own heart. That was a, a saying circulating in David's time early on. He was a man after God's own heart. David, that's Uriah. But David refuses God's escape hatch. Verse 4, so David sent messengers, probably another group because these ones had been contaminated, and took her. And, and from here there's no stopping it. The rape, the lying, the treachery, the murder, the cover-up. And all of this, God sees. And all of this, David must confess. All our sins must be confessed. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer that confession really ought to be a daily practice that we, we make. The, the Lord's Prayer is a model for how to pray says, give us this day our daily bread, so we're to ask God for provision every day. But a little later on in the prayer, as, as most of you know, it says, forgive us our trespasses. So the idea here is that confession, confessing our sins, coming clean before God, should be something that we do daily. We should always come clean before God and keep short accounts with sin. Now, the miracle of Psalm 51 is that all our sins can be forgiven. All our sin must be confessed. All our sins can be forgiven. And if David can be forgiven this, <laughs> then there's hope for each one of us, isn't there? Now, there's only one unforgivable sin in the Bible. And that is what? Say it aloud. The unforgivable sin is 
Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's funny, every Christian at some point in their life is, is, uh, wonders if they've broken that sin. They all, they're worried about it. Did I break that sin or not? <gasps> if you're worried about having broken it, you haven't. That's the thing. What, what, what the blasphemy of the Spirit is, is a refusal of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It's the Holy Spirit who comes and convicts us of sin, Jesus said. And, 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 and convicts us of the fact that our sin will lead to judgment if we don't give it to God. And, and then the Holy Spirit comes and points us to Jesus as the one through whom we obtain righteousness. And so when you refuse the Holy Spirit's work, when you stop your ears and say, not listening, well, it's unforgivable. You can't be saved in that case. But, for the person who does hear, who becomes aware of the sin that's in their life and then brings it to Christ and lays it at his feet, all is well. You're on your way home then. And God will forgive you. If you've never memorized 1 John 1, 9 before, you really need to. Write that in the margin. 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That that I can receive forgiveness. That, that me, this, this sin-crusted, sin-broken soul, can find atonement in Christ for what I've done wrong. <laughs> There's no better news I'll ever hear in my life. That my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That, that, that first song that Andrew and Sherry sung with us. <laughs> it, Jesus once sent his, apostle, his disciples out on a preaching mer- uh, mission and he gave them power to heal and to cast out demons. They came back full of themselves and said, we cast out demons. They were so filled with joy. Jesus smiled too. The Bible says he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. But then he said this. He said, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. But be glad that your names are written in heaven. There's nothing greater than that, my friend. We're to confess all our sins and we can be forgiven of them as well. Especially uh, when you take to heart then the mess, the second message, second lesson in Psalm 51. Uh, this first lesson will give you great joy. Here's the second lesson. It's this. Write this down. I am sinful by nature. And the worst of my sin is in my heart. And verses 3 to 12 are the second section of the psalm. And, uh, and that's the lesson they teach. I am sinful by nature, and the worst of my sin is in my heart. Let's just kind of track through this verse by verse. Verse 3, David writes, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David is saying that everywhere you look in your life, you'll find evidence of sin if you look hard enough. And you shouldn't have to work too hard. I grew up uh, in the Lutheran church, and, and every Sunday we began the service uh, kind of similar to what we do with the time of confession. It was a little more rigid and rote than that, but we always uh, came before God, and we confessed things, uh, sins we had committed, uh, of, of, the, of these three things, thoughts, words, and deeds. And then sometimes we added these two things, things that we have done, things that we have left undone. Now, if you're of the opinion that humans are basically good by nature, we just need a little spit and polish and we're okay, you, you take your average day and you run it through those five things. You look at your thoughts, your words, your deeds, things you've done, things you've left undone. You might want to take back that thought that we're good in our nature. Uh, verse 4 then, David says, Against you, talking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For a long time, I didn't fully grasp this verse. Here David has has ruined Bathsheba's life. He's ended Uriah's life. And yet he has the audacity to say to God, against you only have I sinned. 
And I always thought, well, he's ignoring what he did to everybody else. But no, he's not. David gets it. When Nathan comes to him and exposes him with that great rebuke of what he has done, David knows who he has hurt. He sees it now. But he's proclaiming here a truth that we all must recognize. That ultimately our sin and its long trail of wreckage that, that, that we leave in its wake. Ultimately all our sin is against God. And is an offense against His laws which we have broken. It is actually a spitting in God's face. Take the, the communion juice and, and spit in that. Ultimately what David is saying, is here, is saying here is that the, the one with whom we're going to have to do the one with whom we're going to stand before one day and give an account of our lives is God. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And, and this now is the second motivational tip I have provided you on how to overcome temptation. The motivational tip number one, in case you missed it, God sees everything, including your thoughts. Motivational tip number two, remember that you're going to stand before God one day and give him, give him an account of your life. This idea of future judgment, of hell, is often dismissed today and discounted. And the reason that it's given is because God's a God of love. How can there be a hell if God is a God of love? But you're not thinking deeply enough about this. It's precisely because God is a God of love that there will be, must be, future judgment. I mean, think of it. An existence where the wrongs of this life are never made right, where the injustices of this life are just overlooked, glossed over. Think about it. The issue before us right now is racism. And we've been reminded of the, the dark stain of our nation's history. I mean, imagine for 250 years, slavery was the law of the land in our country. Now, can you imagine, can you possibly imagine all the atrocities that were committed over those 250 years? All the abuse. All the beatings, all the rape, all the Sally Hemings that existed that were seen by no one except God. And, and then think of, of all the atrocities committed by all the Derek Chauvins in this world. Things that video never captured. You think that was a, an, a, just an isolated case? No, we just happened to get that one on video. Can you imagine all those things that have happened that our black brothers and sisters have had to endure all this time? And videos never captured it. And then can you imagine a, a, a God looking at all that and saying, you know what, forget all that. That would not be a God of love. It's exactly because God is a God of love that we know He will call these things to account. Mm. Against you, and you only have I sinned. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Well, now David's getting down to the nub of it. We call this, this idea original sin. It's the idea that we're all born in it. We're sinful by nature. We're not born innocent and harmless and good. And then we learn sin as we grow older, and our environment contaminates it. Uh, we got Chris here this morning, and, and you know they just had a baby, little Hope. And I, I know they just look at little Hope, and she's so innocent and pure and lovely. But they need to know, and I know they do, that inside little Hope is a little Jack Jack who can go blah at any moment. Yes, Chris. <laughs> he just went like this. Now, the seeds of our sin, they're born with us on day one, and they start growing in us in, in day one. Rachel's back home going, my baby! 
Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it chillingly, we are by nature children of wrath. And in my thinking of all Christian doctrines, this one is the easiest to prove. This one, human sinfulness and the sinlessness of Christ. I think those are the two easiest doctrines to, uh, to, to, to prove. And so Don Lamont of CNN, you know, last week said, well, of course we know Jesus' sin. I'm like, excuse me? So, I mean, think about it. How do you prove human sinfulness? Work with me on this. If you took a hundred of the best people on earth right now, a hundred of the most moral, most ethical, most, most virtuous people that are on the planet right this minute, and somehow we could send them away to another planet, a perfect planet where all their needs are met, another garden of Eden for, for, for them to dwell in, and, and we were to leave them there and come back in a hundred years, do you know what we would find there? Earth too. It's because of what's in us. I watched Walking Dead for a few seasons. You know, the creators of that show understand David here. They understand that the, the real monsters in their universe are not the zombies. They're the humans. Who, when you knock away all the props of civilization that we enjoy, all the comforts and, 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 and all the 401ks and the McDonald's, and we're left to deal with things as we really are, our nature will take over. Now sure, how we are raised, our parents, the environment we grow up in, the education we have access to, all these things have impact on the moral lives that we'll lead, end up living. Uh, these, these things like good parenting, to use modern language, will help mitigate the sin of virus that's in us. But the point is, the Bible is saying, that sin is here. Sin's tendencies, sin's desires are embedded in me by nature. And then David tells us where it's found. He finally gets it. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being. You teach me wisdom in my secret heart. And then verse 10, a very famous verse. You should memorize this. Pray this often. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And this is why, because sin is in us, in our very hearts, that all of humanity's efforts to kick God to the curb and to create some kind of utopia of our making from the French Revolution to the Russian Revolution, from Stalin to Mao to the Branch Davidians, down to, 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 to Chaz or Chop or whatever they called it in Seattle. All these attempts to create utopia, if we just get rid of the police or get rid of systemic racism, we take care of all the external things, then we'll be fine. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell because the heart of the human problem has always been the problem of the human heart. And David shows us that, because David now knows it. Well, there's a third lesson in this psalm. There's many more, but we only have time for these three. It's in verses 13 to 17. The lesson is, is this. Forgiveness means I am free from all of sin's judgment, but not all of sin's consequences. Forgiveness means I am free from all of sin's judgment, but not all of sin's consequences. David says in verse 13, after saying, God, renew me, uh, fill me, cleanse me, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now, here's David wanting to get in a time machine and go back to before he committed this great sin. He wants to undo all the damage that he did. He wants to go back to the life he had before when people looked to him 
for moral leadership. That's what he wants desperately. He wants to go back to the joy of those days when he was helped leading Israel in worship. Verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. You see what David wants. Sadly, we've seen this movie before, my friends, of the Christian pastor or the Christian leader who falls into great sin and, and usually it's sexual. And they would give anything to go back to the way it was before. And there are, are, are some who insist on going back. Who refuse the discipline of their, their church. Or the leaders around them. And, and, and they just say. Let's just make believe that. Just give me a mulligan. Let's just go back to the way it was. Let's let things go back to normal. But there is. No going back to normal. Once you've crossed this bridge. And on the one hand, you know it's true uh, what people say, all sin is sin. This person's struggle over here with anger is no better or worse than this person's struggle with some sexual thing. It, it's all sin, it all needs to be brought to Jesus. But on the other hand, you have to understand this, that, that uh, in a practical sense, there are sins that are greater than others. And, and you can see this in the way that churches practice discipline. You don't lose your ministry for getting angry at someone. Or I would step down right now and just leave. Can we end this uh, right now? But if you go and kill the person you're angry with, I'm sorry, but you're not doing the live stream next week. You're going to go away for a long time. Maybe years from now you can come back and have your ministry. But not now. They're both sin, Jesus said. Anger, murder. You've got to deal with them both. Both cancer. But you don't treat them the same. With one, the damage that it causes is... So much worse. And David's sin was a great sin. As much as David wanted to, there was no going back to the way it was before. And while David did not lose his life for this, which could have happened, you know, God had taken people out in Scripture for lesser things than this. And I think the reason that he didn't lose his life at this moment is, is, is for Israel's sake, not for David's sake. If, if David had, had, had fallen at this point, it would have sent Israel into chaos. It was in mercy for Israel that God went this route. But David got away with nothing. His kingship was never the same from this point on. And the pain that sprawled out within his family from here on out is devastating to watch. I'm sure there were times as this unfolded where David wished he were dead. Now, forgiveness is never the issue. We're forgiven. You confess your sins. You mean it. Your heart is broken. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. And then God removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. You'll never face His judgment for those sins. The blood of Christ has paid for all that judgment. The day you die will be the day you join Jesus. You'll join Him in paradise, just like that thief on the cross. But sin always leaves a contrail of after effects and debris and consequences. And many of those you'll have to deal with. The lesson of Psalm 51 and the lesson of David's life is to remember this and let this motivate you to stay on that narrow path. Here's motivational tip number three. Come on, what are they? Motivational tip number one for staying holy. Remember that God sees your deeds and your thoughts. Motivational tip number two. Remember you're going to appear before God on the last day and explain your life to Him. Motivational tip number three, remember, though God forgives your sins, your consequences won't all go away. And just thinking of that for a moment should put the fear of God in you to hold the line. 
David wants to teach transgressors the way. He says so in the psalm. Well, he is in a manner of speaking. With the disastrous failure of his life, he is illustrating something I've called for years the cycle of sin. And I want to close on this and make sure you get this. Something that James talks about. James 1, 14, drop that in the margin as well. Where James writes, each person... In fact, say these words aloud after me as you, as you read, just say it aloud. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I have an entire message on this for my train yourself ministry that breaks breaks all of this out and, and maybe one day I'll, I'll share that I because I know for a fact that in this COVID-19 season that there has been a this has just been a God awful breeding ground for an increase in pornography usage. I just I just know that the statistics bear it out. It was bad before man. It's off the charts now. Talk about a guy being alone being bored and it's not just affecting men but women too, if this is you, there is hope and there is help and I pray you'll reach out to me. You'll send me a note. You'll go to my website, trainyourselfministry.com or reach out to a trusted friend or brother or sister. I've got a 40-day devotional on just this, how to break free of this, called Train Yourself to Be Godly. Uh, talk to me. I'm going through this book right now with a, with a couple of our guys. Don't let this have its way with you. But you need to know the cycle of sin. And so we're just going to go through this briefly. And so write this down. This is what James teaches and what David models with his, his great sin. Step one of sin is this. Desire. Temptation meets me at the point where my desires clash with God's boundaries. I fight the desire to sin with discipline and obedience. The key word, resist. And the Holy Spirit will help us with this. We can't do this on our own. But we have to summon the will to resist. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The first look David got of Bathsheba, that was unavoidable. That's like a pop-up on our computer. You're just typing away, working on your budget, and all of a sudden there's a Caribbean trip that gets advertised with a bikini model that shows itself. That's not a sin. And Bathsheba was not seducing David either. Yes, the passage says she was beautiful, but what of it? God made her that way. And these desires David was feeling, they weren't sinful either. It was part of the sexual machinery. This great gift that God has given us in our sexuality. And this machinery firing up was just a normal gift, part of David's humanity. But it was a part of his humanity that he needed to then reel in and bring to heel, just like the Amalekites and the Philistines. But he wouldn't do it. And so he had to go on to step two in the cycle of sin. And, and step one, this is the easiest place to deal with it. You deal with it here, no harm, no foul, but each step gets harder and harder as you go deeper into this. Step two, deceit. The desire to sin presents itself to my mind with, with reasoned arguments. I, I fight then the deceit of sin with a love for truth and for God. And the, the key word here is, is reason. We have to start reasoning with ourselves. And anyone who's listening knows the drill here. We're talking about the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other. And they're like two attorneys. And I want to ask uh, Nate to come up and help me illustrate this. Nate is going to stand in for King David here. Nate, why don't you just stand right here. 
And let's, uh, I'm going to be the, the, the bad angel over here and the good angel over here. And, and you're just having this tug of war inside your, your, your heart. So uh, just, just your king. Doesn't he look kingly? He looks royal. And, uh, so I'm the bad angel right at, at the moment. David, everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Come on. Good angel now over here. David, you are an image bearer of God, and everybody is not doing it. So many of my children are holding the line and honoring me. And the bad angel comes along. David, they're teaching it in school. It's normal. Good angel. Yeah, but what, what does God's word teach? You've been bought at a price, so glorify God. Honor God with your body. Bad angel says, you have never seen one movie or TV show where they save sex to marriage. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Good angel. Well, that's a lie. And besides that, think of all the people that you're going to harm if you give in to this. <sighs> but it feels great! There's always pleasure in sin for a short season, but then what happens? And God wants to save you from that guilt and shame and wreckage. Hold the line. You can always confess your sin tomorrow. Pastor Bear even said so. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, David. Come on, my son. Do the right thing. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. Ha, hoo, hoo, hoo. Holiness is a thinking man's game. And reasoning with the truth of God's word is how you escape temptation at this juncture. And if you don't, if you don't reason your way out of it, well then you're going to face step three of sin, which is this, disobedience. Disobedience. I disregard God's boundaries and I yield to the desire and deceit of sin. I fight the destructiveness of disobedience here with repentance. Key word is repentance, what we've been talking about all morning. But if you won't repent, if you yield your desires to the deceit of sin, you go ahead and disobey, well then you collect, you, you go directly to step four. You do not pass go. You do not collect hundred. And step four, guess what it is? It begins with D, death. I press on in doing what is right in my own eyes. I either change my view of God or I forget God altogether. In doing so, my sin enslaves me. And leads me to judgment. The key word here to keep in mind is recoil. Don't let this happen to you, my friend. Recoil from this. Run from it. Some of you listening this morning have blown it so many times that you're, you're thinking to yourself or you have thought this before that there is no hope for you. But hope is one thing you should definitely be feeling after walking with us through Psalm 51 this morning. If there is hope for David, there's certainly hope for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, it is not too late. Jesus is waiting to forgive you. Waiting to welcome you back into the family of God. Waiting to come and heal your heart and to come alongside of you and to teach you how to obey. 